So Tim and I sometimes describe ourselves as a thinker-doer couple. So that was the thinker half. This is the doer half. Together we do both, but for the sake of this presentation, that's, that's, how, we're, that's how we're doing it. So Micah 6.8 again. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good and what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. So as I sort of unpack now what it means, having thought about the, this framework of cruciform justice, and, and we'll be kind of referencing, the that's why we handed out the sheet, um, some of these different forms of justice. What does it actually mean for us to do this? How do we wrestle with this on the church level and on the individual level? There are three verbs in this passage. Do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly. So we're going to start with what does it mean to do justice? And just so you know, I'm going to speak more than slide. So this is the slide. <laughs> and I'm told that if I talk more than five minutes, this may go blank. So someone help me. To do justice means that we need to work with God as he empowers us to be agents of change and as he helps other people change their own situations. So in 2 Corinthians, I do not have a Bible anywhere near me. Uh, in 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 21, can someone... Oh, oh, hey. Or if someone has it faster than me, 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 21, could someone read it? Reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So here we have the ministry of reconciliation spelled out before us, and we're called to be ambassadors. We're called to be ambassadors. And what is an ambassador? Someone tell me what's an ambassador. A representative. A representative, a representative of another country. And in this case, we're representative of God's kingdom. And in John 1, 1, in the message, I like how they phrase it, and the word became flesh and moved into the neighborhood. When you become an ambassador, you leave your country and you move into the country and into a neighborhood of another place and you dwell among the people, live among them, and you share cultures. Um, and here's where I'll pause as we start with the verbs, doing justice. We're all ambassadors. There may be some of you here who may be saying, well, I was never really called to this. I wasn't called to be a missionary. I wasn't called to go and rescue people out of the sea or called to go do marches or called to go help people who are in recovery or on the streets. But we are all, in fact, called to do this. Micah 6.8 says, what does the Lord require of you? And in 2 Corinthians, what Tim just read, he says, we are Christ's ambassadors. Not we should be, or we should think about it, or maybe someday when you feel worthy enough. But because we've been reconciled unto God, we are Christ's ambassadors. And now it's time to figure out what that means to carry the cross to the neighborhood. So I'm really glad you're all here. And now we're going to start teasing this apart because we've all been called. Hooray! 
Some of you are already doing that. Some of you can help me do that more. As Tim said, the deeper you get into this work, the smaller you feel. When Tim sh first showed me his half of this talk, I just wept. I just wept and said, I'm not, I'm not doing all these things. Who am I to stand before you? Um, but as a, a, a fellow sheep <laughs> and a fellow ambassador, I'm going to do my best to, to share my piece. So the word became flesh and moved into the neighborhood. We are ambassadors. One thing that ambassadors do, uh, which is something that we all do, is you share meals with people. You share meals as a way of breaking bread to get to know people. Just the simple fact of eating together without even a, an agenda tears down walls. Tim, when he was in college, used to, <laughs> he smartly got together three very different groups in college. Correct me if I'm wrong. You got together the pagan group, the RUF fellowship, which is like the Presbyterian intervarsities, and the, wait, pagans, Presbyterians, and the rainbow group, so the LGBT uh, group on campus. And they would get together for monthly dinners to just talk, because these are very unlikely groups to sit and have dinner together. But when you have dinner together, you find common ground. You find common ground, and it is common ground that lets you repair and restore relationships and understand one another. If you can't find common ground, you can't do justice. You can't work through conflict. And we are called to restore and to make reparations. We are called as ambassadors to do this. So how to, one way of doing this is to just have meals together. Um, that's a way of doing justice. When you sit around the table with people, it also starts preventing you from using othering language. It's no longer those crazy fill-in-the-blank radical group. No longer that crazy fill-in-the-blank or that bizarre or this. The othering language stops. And othering language is something that a lot of us do like, oh, I don't even know what to do with those homeless people. Oh, I don't even know what to do with it's an us and a, us and a them that we start using. And the Ministry of Reconciliation is tearing down those walls while also being called out as members of God's kingdom but tearing down walls of the things that divide us. Um, it is enacting justice. When I was in high school, there's a man from my church, I've told, you may have heard this story before, but um, uh, a man from my church knew that I was interested in, in issues of poverty and justice. And he said, oh, this is in DC. And he said, oh, a bunch of us go out to McPherson Square once a week and we set up a food table. If, if anybody, you know, I know that you're really interested in this, would you like to come join us? And I thought, oh, yay, this is great. You know, 14-year-old, really eager Alice, and 14-year-olds really think they know it all. And I definitely thought I knew it all and knew how to be a super Christian, and I was very excited about doing this. So I joined them, and it was kind of what you would imagine. So we drove a big van out, we set up a folding table, and we stood behind the table with pots of soup. And McPherson Square continues to be a, a very popular area for people to congregate who are on the streets, if you're at all familiar with DC. Um, it was back then. And we used to hand out numbers, so we knew, we had like a count of how many people were coming. It was, it was always over 100. It was also a way so if people would get seconds, we knew when all the numbers ran out, they would come back, blah, blah, blah. So we'd stand in front of this big table and we'd hand out food and we'd stand back here and, and then they'd all be back there and we'd hand out the food and we were here and they were there. And after a while, I said to the man who had invited me, I was like, Don, 
can I go on socialization duty? Because I think there's too many people here and I'd really like to, you know, you don't need me over here dishing out soup. And I walked to the other side of that table and that walk around the table changed my whole life because now I was no longer behind this table, the safe wall of privilege and service and mighty 14-year-old Alice serving the humble poor of DC. Now I was another human being trying to understand other human beings who I totally didn't understand and had an awful lot to learn from. Now I'm seeing instead of the sad poverty over, on the, over there with these poor people I'm serving, I heard laughter, I heard stories, I learned people's, I learned people's names. I'm hearing what's going on and I was in a posture of learning by taking down that dividing othering wall, the separation of us versus them. And that, that was for me a way of starting to do justice, of starting to get to know people. If I wanted to defend and serve the oppressed, who was I even talking about? So I'm now on the other side of this table and I started learning and that, that has changed my, my view ever since and, and continues to do so. Um, when we do justice, we're called to defend and prioritize those of us who are being, who are being oppressed and are probably depressed too. <laughs> we need to both foster broad personal and institutional change. Part of that change, one action step, comes from living simply because there is an economic injustice that happens. Um, if we are inviting people to share life together, if we are starting to share a table together, while I firmly believe in sharing an opulent, lavish table together, a foretaste of the kingdom to come, what you're inviting people into, if you're inviting them into your world and you're driving, maybe I shouldn't give examples, I don't know what you're driving. If you're driving, <laughs> the most expensive car and wearing the most expensive clothes and have the most expensive possessions around and you bring someone into your home who maybe feels sheepish and insecure around all that, it's kind of hard for them to, to think about, oh, I, I can, can I ever be like that? Living simply kind of levels the playing field a little bit. It also helps, it also is a, um, better distribution of wealth so you're, if you are living simply, you are both exemplifying justice through having simpler possessions, but also leveling the playing field when you invite people in. I think money is a place where we do justice poorly a lot, and it's also a place where we have a lot of opportunity. Um, I wanted to give three examples of how I've seen, how I've seen and how I've been a part of leveling the playing field of doing justice around money. One is there's an organization in Seattle called New Horizons. They are a organization that serves young people who are experiencing homelessness or in the foster care system. And everybody in that organization from janitorial staff to executive director gets paid the same salary. So I'll say that again. Everybody gets paid the same salary, whether you are cleaning dishes or whether you are writing proposals for foundations. You get raises for economic achievement. So if you get your GED or your PhD, you get a raise because they are promoting growth among staff. Um, 
the longer you've been there, you can also get a raise. But that's a way that they said, we need to promote justice here. And the, the CEO, or the executive director, shouldn't get paid a $90,000 salary, while the person who's doing the hard work of making our space clean and presentable for these young people coming in only gets paid $25,000 a year. They leveled that playing field. I was, another example was I was a part of an organization once, and I was aware that I was getting paid significantly more than one of my coworkers who had been in the organization for nearly 20 years. And I asked, I said, okay. Someone was a little upset that I was privy to the economic details, um, but I found out and I said, why am I getting paid so much more? And they're like, well, you have a master's degree, you know, he hasn't finished his high school diploma yet. I said, but he's been there for 20 years. This isn't fair. They're like, well, but it's more fair to pay you. I said, it is not more fair to pay me. It is more fair to pay somebody who is struggling and who is cleaning churches on the weekends so he can continue to be a faithful member of the staff. That is not fair. And so, <laughs> that meeting got very tense. I told them I would not leave until they took money from my paycheck to level the field. Oh, we can't do that, we can't do that. We wrote it into the budget. I said, rewrite your budget. This is not fair. This is not fair. I can live on $2,000 less a year. I can live, I don't have to clean churches on the weekend to make things, I don't have a family. I didn't have a family. He was supporting his children and his grandchildren. They finally made that work. Um, recently, I have been involved uh, I'm writing the state plan on ending youth homelessness in Massachusetts, and not a whole lot of money was set aside by our dear Commonwealth for this endeavor. Um, but I am very glad that they are investing resources in, in ending youth homelessness. And as part of our team, it's myself, um, another colleague who's been uh, in this field for a very long time, and we have two young women who were formerly homeless who are working with us because they have lived experience, they can add perspective and voice that no one else could. We're also doing focus groups across the state to get perspective and voice. Well, at the end of last fiscal year, uh, we realized quickly that we were running out of money. And so the work needed to get done. And so myself and my coworker, we, we made an agreement. We said, this work needs to get done and we can afford to not get paid. These young women working with us need to get paid. These focus groups across the state, these young people who are gonna be sharing their experiences with us, they need to get paid. So we agreed to not get paid so that all the other people can get paid. And sometimes that is justice. Does it hurt? Yes, it hurts. Is it the right thing to do? Yes, it's the right thing to do. Do justice. And in, this, in, in the economic justice world, uh, I was on, who here is not on Buy Nothing JP? Is anyone here not on? Oh, I don't know if I should encourage you. Tim calls it Take Everything JP. So there's a face, there's a, I know, Scott calls it that too. So there's a Facebook group, which is a great example of economic justice. Are you on Buy Nothing JP yet? Oh, you're Brookline. No, I saw both of those things. Yes, it's, so it's like economic distribution. So you need something, you post, hey, I'm looking for a ukulele. And five people say, oh, I have a ukulele. Oh, you can have mine. And you can't offer to pay. You can't barter. It's just give and ask. And it is a wonderful redistribution of resources and wealth I think everything I'm wearing right now, including my shoes, came from Buy Nothing JP. So it is a wonderful, <laughs> it's a wonderful community. 
Um, but recently there was a bag of women's clothes that was kind of making the rounds. Oh, I want to look at this bag of clothes, pass it on to the next person, pass it on to the next person. And it had gone through about five or six women at this point. So when somebody asked me if I was interested in looking at it, I said, uh, I think I'm going to pass. She's like, oh, well, I knew you were looking for a woman who needed clothes. I said, yeah, is there anything good left? She's like, well, not really. It's pretty raggy, but um, I was just going to take it to Rosie's place, you know, just, you know, and if nobody else wants it. And I said, let me just give a word that if nobody else wants it, don't take it to Rosie's place. Rosie's place is a drop-in center for women who are either fleeing domestic violence or are experiencing homelessness. And I said, if it's not good enough for you to wear, don't take it to those women. They don't want your crap either. They want, and, and in fact, they, the clothes that get donated to these places almost need to be in better shape because they're not going to get washed. They're going to be wearing them longer. They need to be durable, not holy, because you lose enough dignity on the streets as it is. So just kind of a word out there. If you're donating clothes, sew on the buttons, fix the zippers, or throw it out before you donate it. People don't want your holy clothes and expired food. It is a matter of justice. It's not a matter of giving your secondhand leftovers. Justice is giving the best you have. Um, in Luke 3.11 says, anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none, and anyone who has food should do the same. We have talked about as a community, although it hasn't happened yet, and maybe that's because no one signed up, about doing something called Lazarus at the Gate. If that sounds at all familiar, if it doesn't sound familiar, start reading the newsletters that Chad sends out because it's in there most months. But Lazarus at the Gate is an initiative that sprung out from Boston Faith and Justice Network. You can talk to Tim or Chad if you want to hear more. I would love to see our church do justice in this way. One of the, and now this might scare you off from wanting to do it, but it's amazing. One of the first things that happens in Lazarus at the Gate, it is a... Um, sort of economic discipleship, community building experience. Could you offer, I'll just call it that. One of the first things that happens is everybody is asked to present their finances. And so, to everyone, to everyone else. So everyone's looking at your bank accounts, your monthly budget, what you spend. And I would ask you, would you be comfortable Showing your monthly bank log to everyone in this room. What you spend on, where your money goes. And if not, think about why. Think about where your money goes. Where your money goes, that's where your heart is. Um, we should really do Lazarus at the Gate as a community. It's very, very powerful. But it gets to economic, I mean, it, it takes all the theoretical out of economic justice. We look at our bank accounts together and say, where can we thin out? Or who in our community has need where we can redistribute? That, my friends, is justice. Uh, the, the founder of Rosie's Place, Kip Tiernan, she said, Charity is scraps from the table, but justice is a seat at the table. And so as we're talking about justice, we're not giving our holy clothes. We don't want to give our expired food. We don't want to give, oh, I can probably give a few dollars, you know, to this cause when we can afford to give more. Justice is reparations. It is restoration. It is prioritizing those on the margins and bringing people together. We're called to give abundantly and joyfully. 
If we're called to give joyfully, oh no. Oh, yes. <laughs> then we should be called to love mercy. Not just do mercy, but to love mercy. When I hear this quote, I think of it as an emotion. As if we're giving joyfully, if we're doing justice joyfully, we should be loving it when we do it. We should, we should be, we should be overflowing with desire to empty out our bank accounts and empty out our closets and see if we have three coats and we can slim down to one. That should be exciting. We should think about who can we invite for dinner this week? Who can we ambassadors towards? How can we, how can we? Hopefully all your wheels are spinning on all the ways you can do this. One of the problems though with justice and mercy, a lot of these slides that we showed is this. So you say you love the poor? Name them. People who are struggling with addictions, food and financial insecurity, immigration status, these people are often, often numbered, but they are not named. We know about these issues, but what do we know about the people who are actually experiencing these issues? In Boston, Tim was citing the stats before, uh, last year, 6,240 people were counted, were actually counted as being homeless. 6,000 people. How many of those people do you know? Last year, 196 people overdosed on heroin in Boston. That hits home. That hits home. We have, we have poverty, we have homelessness, we have addiction, we have violence, we have mental illness in our congregation. Um, for those who have no idea why I'm crying, we lost a dear member to overdose a year ago. These are not just numbers. If they are just numbers, find faces to go with them. Uh, a few years ago, I was volunteering to do this this count, there, Tim had the picture of them looking at the man under the blanket, and uh, it's a really interesting experience going out on that team doing the, the count. And the next day, I was sitting out on the streets with some young people I know who are on the streets, and I was like, hey guys, well, what'd you think about all the hullabaloo and counting? I mean, it's, it's really, it's like, it's a very important thing to do and they also make kind of a sideshow of it. The mayor's out there and someone dresses like Santa Claus and they hand out hot chocolate and the news are there and they're following them with video cameras. And, you know, my friends were like, yeah, whatever. We don't want to be a number. We were all like playing cards down in the tunnel. And I was like, guys, the numbers, you are not a number. The numbers matter because if we can't do a count, we can't say how many beds we need or we can't say things are getting better or getting worse. And they're like, yeah, whatever, I'm not a number. So I'm telling myself, okay, 6,244 people experienced homelessness this year. Um, when I see these brochures, when I see pictures like that, when I look at initiatives happening around the city, it does bring me joy because I have the privilege of knowing a lot of the people that show up on these brochures, a lot of people on the streets, a lot of people who share their, their stories. And it's, it is humanizing. It's humanizing 
when I'm walking with the kids and we see someone we know who happens to be homeless and we're like, hey, Tim, nice to see you. You know, and there's, there's a humanizing that's happening. Um, when we talk about Black Lives Matter, we need, to, we need to say names. We need to say Michael Brown and Trayvon Martin. The names matter because they're not just numbers. We need to get to know people. We need to get to know the stories. That is when you start loving mercy and you get excited and you get heartbroken and you get all the emotions because it's, it's home. It's, you're experiencing it. It's real. And I'll tell you, I don't always do it. I've been doing this kind of work for over 20 years now and I still mess up all the time. Um, I don't know, a couple weeks ago, about a month ago, a gentleman set up kind of an encampment on our street corner and I was walking with the kids and I was really frustrated because we were walk now we're walking in the street because the sidewalk had this sort of barrier he had built and it wasn't very safe and I was suddenly just overwhelmed, didn't know what to do. I quickly typed it into the 311 app. I don't know if anyone uses the 311 app. You can use it for potholes and you can use it for encampments. And I was like, hey, this guy set up his thing on the sidewalk. This is really annoying. And I sent a pretty insensitive little note to 311 basically saying, there's a problem here. Can somebody take care of it? Two big mistakes. One was I should know better because I actually know everybody who works in the homeless system. So a few minutes later, I get a phone call from a colleague who was like, hey, Alice, saw your message. Whoops. Careful what kind of language I'm using. There's actually people on the other end of these apps. Um, and he reminded me quickly, I don't know if I was compassionate even in my anonymous 311. They're not anonymous, by the way. In my anonymous 311 message, right? I wasn't compassionate. I wasn't being merciful humanizing, I was othering, even though it was a 301 app, you could argue it was totally appropriate, it wasn't appropriate. Over the next few weeks, we actually got to know this guy. He's a really nice guy. He stops by our house all the time. Tim made him coffee the other day. Um, I am not as upset when I see piles of his possessions on our steps. Now that he knows us, some of his possessions migrate to our front steps. And I don't know if they're gifts or I don't know what is happening, but I know him, but I know him now. So now I'm no longer like taking a picture of my front step and sending it angrily to three on one because it's a problem. Now it's a person. It's a person I got to know. And I'm telling you this story because like I said, it's like daily we take up our cross. Daily we have to be reminded and renewed and restored and um, God is gracious to us. God is gracious to show me how to grow as well as this. There, there's a group of, of monks. I tried to find a picture of this, but I couldn't find it. When you buy one of their hand-carved chairs, they actually carve a little design on the bottom of every chair because they believe that they want their work to, be, to represent their lives and so they polish the underside of the chair that nobody sees as a statement of, we need to polish the areas of our life that nobody sees. What are we doing when no one's looking? What are we doing with our money? How are we talking about people when they can't hear us? How are we thinking about people when they can't see us? Are the, the dark places that nobody sees in our lives, are they polished and decorated? Because God sees them. He sees right through all our crap. And he asks us to give our best. Are, are we doing that? 
1 John 3:18 says, well, this is the translation of a hippie Bible that I have. Everyone should read it. It's called Letters to Street Christians. It's translated into Jive. Uh, there's a lot of like, dig the word, man. But in this version, John 3:18 is translated, let's not, cats and kittens, brothers and sisters, let's not talk a bunch of rhetoric about love. Go out and do love. Let's not talk a bunch of rhetoric about love. Go out and do love. Do justice. Love mercy. Don't just serve up rhetoric. Serve up meals. Serve up movie nights. Serve up ways to build ties in community. Again, we're ambassadors of the kingdom. But because we're ambassadors of the kingdom, we're not just called to redistribute our wealth and our possessions and to be compassionate to people on the streets. We're also called most essentially to bear the cross and bring the kingdom to everybody and to everybody and people who are being oppressed, which is some of us, they are often the last people who receive the gospel. Sometimes because we're so busy trying to do good works, we think, oh, our good works can stand for themselves. We don't even need to talk about Jesus. I think a great quote that is a horrible quote was, uh, preach the gospel at all times and use words if necessary. That was attributed to St. Francis. I'm pretty sure St. Francis talked about Jesus. Pretty sure, just, just guessing, it wasn't there, pretty sure. He talked about Jesus. And now in social justice movements, it's like we're so freaking scared of evangelism. But if you don't have hope, what is the point of giving people housing and health care if you don't have anything to live for? Why get sober if you're just going to have all of the things that you have oppressed and suppressed down come back at you. Why get sober? Because there is hope, there is healing. We are a community that's going to struggle together and be with one another. If you don't have that message of hope, what, what do you have? One of the, uh, the principles of cruciform justice that Tim shared was cruciform justice proclaims the victory. It makes the cross visible. And so what does it mean to make the cross visible. Um, I have a poem. Tim, can you hand this out? Is there anybody in this room who just adores poetry and is willing to read it in a, with meaning? This poem I'm passing out right now, in a way it could have been written by David in the Psalms. He, he's written a lot of poetry like this. When I say that we need to bring the word to people, we need to bring it honestly. I think sometimes we cut out areas of the Bible that we don't think are going to be palatable to people, like they don't want to hear it. But we were not called to be editors of the word. We were called to bring the word. That also means that suffering may not end. Uh, our theology of suffering is pretty poor. God is not going to suddenly take away all of our pain. God is not necessarily going to choose to make our circumstances better. But what he does promise is that he will give us his spirit. And that includes the spirit of peace, a peace that passes all understanding, even when things are awful. So if someone, could someone volunteer to read this poem? Someone, someone, someone loud with feeling. Yes. Melissa, can you read it? Wait, if this has been recorded, you might need to read it in here. Hold on. I want you to hear this poem and reflect on what it means to suffer, but suffer with hope. You hear me again as words from the depths of me rush toward you in the wind. 
I've been scattered in pieces, torn by conflict, mocked by laughter, washed down in drink. In alleyways, I sweep myself up out of garbage and broken glass. With my half mouth, I stammer you, who are eternal in your symmetry. I lift to you my half hands in wordless beseeching that I may find again the eyes with which I once beheld you. I am a house gutted by fire, where only the guilty sometimes sleep before the punishment that devours them hounds them out into the open. I'm a city by the sea, sinking into a toxic tide. I'm strange to myself, as though someone unknown had poisoned my mother as she carried me. It's here, in all the pieces of my shame, that now I find myself again. I yearn to belong to something, to be contained in an all-embracing mind that sees me as a single thing. I yearn to be held in the great hands of your heart. Oh, let them take me now. Into them I place these fragments, my life, and you, God, spend them however you want. So what does it mean as we invite people into our community to be cross-bearers, but also to be hope-bearers. So lastly, we are called to walk humbly. We're called to seek and imitate Christ who took on the form of a servant. We're called to incarnation, to be incarnational ministry, taking cues from God's radical condescension to our nature. We're not called to heroism. We're not called to make great names for ourselves. In fact, if we're doing this right, someone will walk away from a connection with our church, our churches, or with us, and they won't say, oh my goodness, Melissa is so amazing. Oh my goodness, Christ the King Church is so amazing. We want them to walk away saying, oh my goodness, God is a great God. That means we did it right. That means we did it right. But that's, that's humbling. That's humbling. That means working together across communities. Uh, it means not getting the glory. The word became flesh and moved into the neighborhood. He moved into the neighborhood. He dwelt among. When you dwell among, you're working together as a community. You're not, while there are leaders, we're all different kinds of leaders with different kinds of strengths and different kinds of resources. We need to be interdependent. We need to walk humbly. Uh, my colleague, Ayala, who I'm working on the state plan around youth homelessness with, she recently did something that I gave her huge accolades for because I'm probably the only one who would know that she deserved them. There was a, uh, a national a webinar that got national attention around youth experiencing homelessness and mental illness. So young people were going to be sharing about their experiences of what it's like to have been traumatized, uh, having dealt with or continue to deal with mental illness and or co-occurring addictions while being homeless. Every single kind of webinar, conference, workshop I've ever been to like this that had young people involved it was almost like they shared their stories, but it was like they were tokenized. 
You know, so the, the facilitator did a lot of talking, did a lot of re-explaining of what they said, and then did the summary at the end. In this webinar, Ayala, I think, said all of four words, uh, four lines in this webinar. Uh, she spent a lot of time behind the scenes training, empowering, rehearsing, practicing, so that the four people who were doing this webinar, who had all the lived experience in the world, did the whole thing. That took a lot of humility, because again, this got national attention, it was recorded, there was a transcript, I mean, it was a beautiful, beautiful, powerful thing, but it was even more powerful because it was from, it was 99.99% from the people with the experience. They weren't being othered, they weren't being set aside, they were, they were lifted up so that both their experience but also their expertise to be able to facilitate and run the whole thing was leveled. But how often do we do that? You know, tonight I was, I was saying to Tim, I was like, I wish we had other people to come up here with us to talk about their experiences because we are a community with different expertise, different kinds of lived experiences. And I want to continue to be a community where we, where we draw from our expertise, where we draw from our experiences, but we're not raising up heroes. We're looking to Christ as the one who makes things right, who gives us power, who gives us strength, and we lean on each other. The humility, when we are walking humbly, it's a, it's a posture. So justice is something we're doing. Mercy is something that we're embodying and feeling. And humility is a posture we're taking as we're doing this work. In that posture, your humility will affirm the dignity of those that you are trying to help. You are not othering, you are not patronizing. You also need to know that in doing that, you may be able to receive and never shut yourself off from receiving from people in very unexpected places. Um, a young woman I knew for 10 years on the streets, she got housing finally, she had her third child, and when I was pregnant with Shepard, she said, I wanna throw you a baby shower, and I said, I don't really need anything, I, you know, I don't really need a baby shower third time around, you like have it all, but then I, I stopped myself quickly and I said, that would be such an honor if you could throw me a shower. And she came over to her house, she had organized everything, she brought food, she even brought cleaning supplies with her, and she cleaned my house afterwards. This is somebody who, I held in my arms sobbing in Copley Square for years as she struggled and struggled and struggled and struggled. And now she's in a place where I am sobbing with gratitude for this beautiful party she threw for me. Uh, then soon after Shepherd's birth, one of our children had a very hard time with the transition. Very hard time with the transition. And it was very hard to parent him. Very hard. And she was over at our house and she was visiting baby Shepherd, and she saw that I was struggling with one of our children. And it was amazing. She's like, you know what? DCF has made me go to an awful lot of parenting classes and I learned some cool stuff. And she had all these phenomenal things. No one has ever made me go to parenting classes. Now, now I think everybody should go to parenting classes because they teach you some amazing stuff. But this was where, because of our relationship, I was able to receive. And the things she told me, I still do with one of my children. And a lot of the time, it's, it's very effective. You know, again, it's receiving. Once I had a dog who was dying. Uh, outreach workers don't get paid very much. I was not 
in any position to pay $1,000 for the, a dog, much less his medical bills. Sorry, Melissa. I know this is your bread and butter on the side. Melissa's a vet. Um, and I was in, I was out in the streets and I'm sobbing like, oh my gosh, my dog is sick. It's going to cost $1,000. And someone I knew walked over to me and put $20 in my pocket. She has nothing. She's sleeping in an alley in Newberry Street and she gives me $20 for my dog. Sometimes it seems like the people who have the least know how to give the most. Our friends from the street who get recently housed, their couches and floors are constantly filled with people. And yet how many of us have spare bedrooms that go unused? What's happening there? You know, what, what, what's happening there? I, I, I think the, there's a little bit of Jesus shining in on people when they don't know it. And I love calling that out. Call it out. If you see the light of Jesus, if you see truth and things of beauty shining in people, call it out as a good thing from God. And so when I see this generosity and this humility of I've been there, I therefore give. I, I want to call it out and I see that and I affirm it. Um, but as Christians, it is a privilege. It is a privilege to walk this life with Jesus. It's a privilege to be called to be a co-laborer with Jesus. It is a privilege to share in the suffering of others. It is a privilege to have my suffering shared by others. It's humbling. It's beautiful. And you might be saying, well, I don't know if I can do it. I don't know if I'm called. What if I mess up? You will. You will. We will. We will mess it up. And that's okay. Better to try than not try at all. Apologize. Work together. Move on. You might say, oh, what if I get hurt? You will. You will get hurt. You might get hurt badly. I've been hurt badly. You will lose people. You will go to funerals. You may get robbed. You may feel cheated. And that's okay. You know what? Most of us in this room can afford that. We probably have stable enough lives right now that we can bear that blow a little easier than some others. If you have the emotional fortitude to bear that blow, bear that blow and stand shoulder to shoulder with people who need your stable, privileged place in life right now. Isaiah 58, uh, the, the passage which I hope all of you know, what has the Lord called us to do? Does anyone know it from memory? Can anyone? This is the kind of fasting the Lord requireth to, to do justice, love mercy. Love mercy. Oh, come. oh, that's Micah 6.8. But Isaiah is very, very similar. Oh. I will read it. We had this read at our wedding. My mom's like, that's a weird verse to read at a wedding. I was like, mom, come on. <laughs> ah. Oh, that's Isaiah 59. Isaiah 58. Is this not the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, to break every chain? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry, to bring the homeless poor into your house? When you see the naked, to cover him, not to hide yourself from your own flesh. Then shall your light break forth like the dawn, your healing shall spring up, your righteousness shall go before you, and the glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. So if you ask, ah, what if I do it wrong? What if I get hurt? Well, you will, but the glory of the Lord is at your back. The glory of the Lord is at your back. And so I invite you all to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly. 
And now I want to ask us, with the remaining five or 10 minutes that we have, what does that look like in our community and why are we scared to do it? What's holding us back? There are ways we're doing this beautifully, but what's holding us back from doing more? Tim, do you want to come up now and join me? That's a great question. So the question was, if you didn't hear it or for those who are hearing it, what does it look like practically to take those steps in our community? Do you want, can I dive in? Do you want to? Well, I like the, the way that you kind of started this talk by, uh, by su suggesting that people open up their table. I think that um, like opening up your home, uh, inviting someone to dinner, um, making friends with somebody who's different than you, um, finding like building bridges in your community um, with communities uh, that uh, you're not familiar with, uh, finding just little ways of um, uh, bridging the gap of difference wh wherever that may be. Um, and the step be really before that would be finding out someone's name. Do you know the names of the neighbors all around you? Or the people you pass by? There are a lot of people who ask for spare change on Center Street. Do we all know their names? Do we know the names of the people who are spanging over, spanging, spare changing, spanging by Green Street, uh, Forest Hills, who are camping out over by Stony Brook? You don't have to, that's a rhetorical question. If you don't know their names, get to know their names. Um, I will say, just as a practical question, as also I'm a mom of small children, not all of us can invite all the people to our tables. That's just, that's a practical thing, um, unfortunately. But you can invite some of the people to most of our tables, and some of us can invite all the people to our tables. None of this is meant to be done in isolation. This is meant to be done in community. Uh, some of it is you get to know people really, really, really well, and you have a sense of, yes, I can invite you over to my table. Or I can at least meet you, talk to you, find your name, find your story. Um, finding ways where an example of justice would be, maybe there is a young mom who is struggling to meet ends meet. You could buy food. But of course, that's sort of a one-off thing, and maybe you're just feeding into the system of injustice, not that you shouldn't buy the food, but maybe it's you watch her children while she takes classes so she can further education, get a better job, be able to provide for her family. And you can still buy her food while she's doing that, but finding ways to empower people, level the playing field where you have resources. If with, you're with your kids, can you add in any more? If you are gonna watch a movie, can you invite anyone in? What does it look like to share time and space? I think as a church, we're often really, really busy. I'm so guilty of that, and it's really bad right now. But we're really, really busy. But where are the margins we can carve out to invite more people into that, just to do life with us? Because again, it's humanizing. It's taking away the other. It's inviting people into this. And if we are ambassadors as the kingdom of God, if they're not sharing life with us in the small things, seeing how we do or don't, interact well with our children. You know, I've had friends say, even when I'm yelling at my children, telling me that it's still more, it's the most compassionate mothering they've ever seen. And just to witness that is transformative for them, to see like another way of doing things. So, is that helpful? Oh, and we need to, okay. 
Okay, yeah. one more question, and then we'll be around with our kids, hopefully not yelling. This is just an add-on to what you were just saying. I'm gonna speak for the Kecks and for us in particular. Um, community groups during the year are a really good way to do that, but Melissa and I in particular do have like 87 children combined. <laughs> 87, yeah. That's the right number. Um, so, but, but I, I, Sunday is, is the anniversary when Justin died last year, but he was very, very excellent at that. There were always new people in our homes because of Justin. And I think just, just knowing that, that you should feel free to do that, community groups are great night for that, but like truly there were, there were like people that were strangers to me on a regular basis coming and eating meals with us. But if you can do this with yeah. kids, think of what you can do without kids. Oh my yeah. goodness, the possibilities are endless, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> I, think, I think a lot of the emphasis of our, of our talk tonight has been on the way that justice is defined as right relationship. Uh, and the way that we can engage in justice by just simply being involved in relationships with people who are different than us and by seeking opportunities to do that um, that are, are really intimate and equitable, um, that where mutuality is practiced and where we're cautious about our, um, our language and uh, also um, introspective and, <laughs> and careful to, yeah. to kind of look, look uh, at ourselves and to, to ask the hard questions of ourselves. Um, uh, and to be willing to learn. So, I think if I was gonna, going give us a, give somebody some practical advice, it would be to um, uh, seek out some new friendships, uh, some challenging friendships in our neighborhood. So, my phone tells me to be on time. So I want to respect our nursery workers. And <laughs> thanks, everyone. This is great. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you.